Peace be upon you. So let's say you had to choose between two friends and decide which one do you value more. Friend one is the kind of person that when you go out to eat, they'll immediately cover the bill. You know, they won't ask for any money. They'll cover it. If you guys decide to stay home to watch a movie, they'll let you pick the movie. And if you guys are in the car driving, if you want to listen to music or a podcast, whatever you want, they'll go along with. And if you're sick and in need, they'll take care of you. They'll help you. They're always dependable. They'll even cook and clean for you if needed. And in short, they'll provide all these uh, value to you. But in return, all they ask for is a little bit of appreciation. On the other hand, friend two is kind of the opposite. When you guys go out to eat, they won't even look at the bill. They'll expect you to pay. And uh, if you guys want to watch a movie, (laughs) they expect to pick the movie. If you pick the movie and it's something they don't like, they're going to get angry. They're going to get upset. They might even yell at you. They expect you to do things for them, to clean up after them, to feed them, to spend money on them, to do all these things, to continuously give them praise. And in return, they give very little, maybe some appreciation, but that's it. So who would value friend one more than friend two? Now, naturally, everyone's going to say, of course, I value friend one. Why would I want anything to do with friend two? You know, friend one is dependable. They're nice. They're considerate. They're all these things. Friend two, on the other hand, sounds kind of like a brat. But ask yourself this. Why is it that most people, they'll value their children more than they value their parents? Because their parents are representation of friend one. They take care of them. They feed them. They give all these money and sacrifices to raise them. And in return, all they ask for is for a little bit of appreciation. And children are representative of friend two. They complain. They're, you know, they, they, they yell at you. They're mean. They expect us to do these things for them. And the thing is, the reality is, we're not all parents, but all of us were children. And all of us behaved in this way. We thought that this was the natural order of things. That these people that were presented in our life as our parents, that it was their duty to take care of us, to feed us, to spend money on us, to entertain us. And we thought this was natural. But why is it that as parents, knowing this, being both a parent and a child, that we still typically value our children more than we value our parents? And to understand this, we're going to look at an example of cake mix. So cake mix. You add water, put it into an oven, and you make a cake. This started in the 1930s, and it was that simple. They had this powder, you had water, you put it in the oven, and, you know, you make cake. But it wasn't that big of a success until the 1950s. Something dramatic changed in the 1950s. They changed the ingredients. And this time, you didn't just add water. You added water and a couple of eggs. And all of a sudden, these uh, cake mix sales took off. Why? What was it about adding eggs that made this into a, uh, such a success and it's counterintuitive but when someone creates a cake and all they do is they add water and put it into the oven all of a sudden there is no baking really there's no ownership you can't really claim credit for making that cake you really didn't do anything but the second you crack those eggs open and you mix that batter all of a sudden you became a baker you created this cake and it gave you ownership to it so all of a sudden people felt accomplished when they created this cake now you would think more work, why would that increase the value of the end product? This is actually known as the IKEA effect. Anyone who's you know bought furniture from IKEA knows the process. You buy a nice you know bookshelf and you're totally jazzed to put this thing together and you think it's gonna take an hour at tops to put it together. Five hours later, you're done and you've 
made numerous mistakes and you put the, the uh, shelves on the wrong order and you had to reassess the, uh, the screws and some of them you couldn't find, but you finally finished. And this sense of accomplishment makes you value that shabby piece of furniture that much more. It makes you think that it's like, wow, I created this. <laughs> and they did this experiment with origami. They grab, they grab people and they put them into two groups. Group one was the builder. They were the ones who were going to create the origami. Group two was the buyers. And this, these people were going to assess how much are they willing to pay for the origami. So the builders, they make their origami and they say, okay, builders, how much do you think the buyers are going to pay for this origami? And naturally, the builders, because they saw the effort they put into it, how much they struggled, the work that went into it, the folds, the creases, all this, they always assessed that the buyers would pay more than they actually were willing to pay. Again, because they valued the work they put into it. Now, they did a funny uh, twist on this experiment. What they did is they gave a group of the builders kind of cryptic, archaic instructions, not as detailed as the other group. And these ones, they didn't tell them exactly how to fold it, and it was kind of uh, misleading. So these people, they struggled to make the origami, the paper crane, the jumping frog, whatever. And it came out looking worse than the one who had the detailed group, but they put more time, more energy, more effort into creating this thing. Now, this looked worse than the other uh, creations. But would you think that this would increase or decrease how much the builders thought the buyers were willing to pay for this shabby origami? And what happened was that the ones who struggled to make the origami with the cryptic instructions, they valued their creations as more than the other group. And needless to say, the buyers valued it less because all they saw was a shabby origami paper crane right because it wasn't as well designed as the other it didn't have as detailed instructions so what is it that these these people they created a subpar creation but because of the time the energy they put into it they thought that the buyers would value it more and this is what it comes down to is what we work for is proportional to how much we value that uh, end product now take for example if you go out to a restaurant and you go to a steakhouse and you get a steak, and let's say it's a little overcooked or undercooked, however you like it, or the mashed potatoes are cold. What do you do? You freak out, right? We freak out. We say, what is this? I came for this delicious meal and I'm getting a subpar meal. This is terrible. It's an atrocity. And you go write a terrible Yelp review and <laughs> you're complaining about everyone about how terrible the food is. Now, let's say you were at home and you cook steak and it came out subpar. But to you, because of the time, the energy you put into creating this steak, you think it's the best meal there ever was. You're so convinced. You think that, hey, why don't I go open up a restaurant so everyone can experience this delicious meal? It's because we value the things we work for more than what's just handed to us. And this has great significance when it comes to religion. Because our father and mother, Adam and Eve, when they were in paradise, they had everything. They were in paradise. They had nothing that they could potentially want that wasn't in access. But what happened? They didn't value what they had. And when Satan whispered to them to approach this tree, and they did, they realized they gave up something that they did not value. And they had to go through hardship and pain and frustration 
in adversity, in order to be redeemed, in order to learn appreciation. You see, we are put here in this world because we're unappreciative, because we have this deficiency that when something is handed to us, we value it less. So God created a system where we have to work hard to redeem ourselves. Now, the folly of this is that we cannot physically see God, but we see what it is that we create. So because we can't see God and understand everything that God has just given to us, we value God less and we value what we create more. And a perfect example of this is Abraham. In 3795, he said, Abraham, how can you worship what you carve when God has created you and everything you make? These people, they are carving things, statues with their own hands, and they're giving it more value than the one who created them and what they carve. And because of this, they worship these idols. In 2669, it reads, Narrate to them Abraham's history. He said to his father and his people, What is this you are worshiping? They said, We worship statues. We are totally devoted to them. He said, Can they hear you when you implore? Can they benefit you or harm you? They said, No, but we found our parents doing this. You see this consistently with idol worship, is that these people are valuing what they see in front of them, what they put time and energy. These people are saying, look, we carved these things with our hand. Our parents have been doing this. Look at the, the, the cost we put into creating these things. And they value that more than they value God. And this is Abraham's response in 2675. He said, do you see these idols that you worship, you and your ancestors, I am against them, for I am devoted only to the Lord of the universe, the one who created me and guided me, the one who feeds me and waters me. And when I get sick, he heals me, the one who puts me to death and brings me back to life, the one who hopefully will forgive my sins on the day of judgment. Abraham realized that despite God owing him nothing, that God provided him with so much, you know, we could be an amoeba somewhere looking for our next glucose, but God created us, gave us the mind, the hearing, the eyesight, the intellect, all these things for us to be appreciative. But the folly we make is that we value the things in front of us. And 924 says, proclaim, if your parents, your children, your siblings, your spouses, your family, the money you have earned, the business you worry about, the homes you cherish, are more beloved to you than God and his messenger and the striving in his cause, then just wait until God brings his judgment. God does not guide the wicked people. These things that we pour our blood, sweat, and tears into, the trade-off is that what happens is we value these more than the one who's provided us with all this. And when we do that, we're showing that we're unappreciative. Surah 30, verse 7, it reads, They care only about things of this world that are visible to them while being totally oblivious to the hereafter. So God created a system that we have to work hard to redeem ourselves. You think if we were appreciative, we wouldn't need all this. We could live in paradise. We could be close to God. But God created a system for us to learn appreciation through hard work. He created the Salat. So five times a day, we have to stop what we're doing and focus on God and think and remember and be appreciative of God. God created the system of Zakat. So the money we earn, the money that we put in our pocket, that we take 
2.5% of that, and we purify our income. God created charity for us to take, again, from what we earn, to give to someone else. He created fasting. So for a time period, for a month out of the year, we refrain from food and drink during the day so we can be appreciative of all that God has given us. Because sadly, we have a deficiency where we don't value what we've not worked hard to earn. But I'd say it's even worse than that. We have a sense of entitlement that, again, we deserve these things, that God owes it to us, that God owes us provisions and wealth and good food and uh, good status and all these things. We think that because this is the current state of affairs, that A, we deserve this, and that B, we should have even better. We see this example in 1836 when the two people in the garden, the one who was being arrogant said to the other, he said, moreover, I think this is it. I do not think that the hour, the hereafter will ever come to pass. Even if I'm returned to my Lord, I will uh, possess an even better one over there. Meaning that this person thought that, hey, look, God gave him this garden, gave him these blessings, the status, the money, the wealth, and that this was, he was entitled to it. And that if he was to be returned to God, he would have an even better one over there. Why? He doesn't deserve any of this. This is no different than a child who thinks that they deserve everything. And Again, all of us were children at some point. We all made this mistake where we thought we were entitled to these things. We thought it was our right that our parents pay for us and take care of us and feed us and give, make us their priority. Now, there's a second aspect because we've seen that, okay, when we put time, energy, effort into something, we value it more. But there's another element. Anyone who studied basic economics, it's supply and demand. That these two are inversely correlated. That as supply goes up and demand goes down, prices go down. And as supply decreases and demand goes up, price increases. Now, how does this apply to God? God tells us in the Quran, in 17.20, says, For each one of them we provide, we provide for those and these from your Lord's bounties. Your Lord's bounties are inexhaustible. In 1521 it reads, There is nothing that we do not own infinite amounts thereof, but we send it down in precise measure. God, whose provisions are inexhaustible, let alone His mercy and grace, is infinite. How do we create, in essence, demand that can suffice with the supply that God provides? God uses a tactic that's similar in marketing. It's called artificial scarcity. He created a scenario where it seems as though God's mercy and grace is scarce. But it's available for all those who are seeking it. So that way, we value it more. In 2.1.15, it says, To God belongs the east and the west. Wherever you go, there will be the presence of God. God is omnipresent, omniscient. 2186, when my servants ask you about me, I'm always near. I answer their prayers when they pray to me. The people shall respond to me and believe in me in order to be guided. God is telling us he's always there. He's always present. He's always answering our prayers. But what happens is that he puts us in situations where we have to go and search and need God. Now, this becomes challenging in the sense that God doesn't need any of this. In 6.14 it reads, Say, shall I accept other than God as Lord and Master when he is initiator of the heavens and the earth, and he feeds but is not fed? 
Say I'm commanded to be the most devoted submitter and to do not be an idol worshiper. In 39.7 it reads, If you disbelieve, God does not need anyone, but he dislikes to see his servants make the wrong decision. If you decide to be appreciative, he is pleased for you. No soul bears the sins of any other soul. Ultimately to your Lord you return. And then he will inform you of everything you had done. He is fully aware of the innermost thoughts. And God shows us how he creates this artificial scarcity. So we turn to him and implore him alone. It continues in 39.8. It says, when the human being is afflicted, he implores his Lord sincerely devoted to him alone. But as soon as he blesses him, he forgets his previous imploring, sets up idols to rank with God and to divert others from his path. Say, enjoy your disbelief temporarily. You have incurred the hellfire. God created a world where these scenarios take place, where all of a sudden things are made scarce. Food is made scarce, security is made scarce, provisions are made scarce, funding is made scarce, so that we implore God, the source of it all. If God was here physically in that sense, and immediately anything we wanted we can instantly get access to, we would have never, we would A, transgress, and we would never learn appreciation. God intentionally limits these things for our own good. In 42.27, it says, If God increased the provision for his servants, they would transgress on earth. This is why he sends it precisely measured to whomever he wills. He is fully cognizant and seer of his servants. In 43.33, it reads, If it were not that all the people might become one disbelieving congregation, we would have granted everyone who disbelieves in the most gracious mansions with silver roofs and stairs upon which they could climb. It is a blessing from God that He limits the provisions. He limits His grace, His mercy for us to be appreciative. But the reality is as soon as we need Him, as soon as we implore Him sincerely, He removes anything that bothers us and He restores the situation. And this is part of God's system for us to learn appreciation, to eliminate this deficiency that causes us to come here. Because we were all in paradise. We were all in the presence of God. We had everything we could possibly want, yet we were unappreciative. So God created a system by which we work hard to learn appreciation. Because it's guaranteed that if you're unappreciative, if you're ungrateful, you will never be happy. So we have to go through this to learn this process. Now there's another element of psychology that God uses is that he gave us all this up front. He gave us the hearing, the mind, the eyes, the, the brain, the family, the connections, the provisions. But it hurts more to lose something than it does to gain. Meaning, if I gave you $1,000 versus if I took $1,000 from you, the joy you would experience gaining that $1,000 is not comparable to the pain you would feel losing that $1,000. So God created a situation where things can momentarily be taking a, taken away for us to feel that pain, to come back to God, to become appreciative. An example of this is with the uh, people of Sheba. They were blessed with basically luxurious uh, gardens. They had oases. They had this amazing channel of water that would irrigate the land for them. That would always provide them with fruits and provisions and provided them with secure stations for which they travel for trade. 
And it reads in 3415, says, Sheba's homeland used to be a marvel with two gardens on the right and on the left. Eat from your Lord's provisions and be appreciative of him. Good land and a forgiving Lord. They turned away and consequently we poured upon them a disastrous flood. We substituted their two gardens into two gardens of bad tasting fruits, thorny plants, and skimpy harvests. We thus requited them for their disbelief. Do we not requite only the disbelievers? We placed between them and the communities that we blessed over oasises, and we secured the journey between them. Travel therein, days and nights in complete security. And this is the kicker. They were given all this. Generations were able to benefit from this. And in 3419 it reads, But they turned unappreciative and challenged our Lord. We do not care if you increase the distance of your, our journeys without any stations. They thus wronged their own souls. Consequently, we made them history and scattered them into small communities throughout the land. This should provide lessons for those who are steadfast, appreciative. Now you can go online, go on Wikipedia and look at the Mirab Dam. This is where it's believed to have taken place, where in around, I want to say, uh, the first century AD, the uh, dam broke, and this was a uh, five-mile-long, 120-foot-high dam that provided water and irrigation for the people of that time. And because they were unappreciative, this dam burst and caused a tremendous flood that wiped out all the security, the provisions that they had because they were unappreciative. Now, in our lives, God is momentarily going to take things away from us for us to learn to be appreciative. And this is a blessing because if we're appreciative, God is going to reward us for it. In 14.7 it reads, Your Lord has decreed the more you thank me, the more I give you. But if you turn unappreciative, then my retribution is severe. And there's a story of a man who was 75 years old, and um, he started having stomach problems. He goes to the doctor, doctor checks out and says, hey, this is serious, we need to do immediate surgery. They take him to the operating room, and you know the surgery was a success. And then afterwards, the man gets the bill, and he immediately starts crying. And when the doctor asks him, says, hey, is there anything we can do? We can help out with the bill if it's too much, we can make arrangements. The man says, no, it's not the cost. It's the fact that for 75 years I've been eating and God has never sent me a bill. And this is what it is. God has given us these things, the digestive system, the eyes, the ears, the uh, all these blessings that we have that we take for granted. And he asks us for nothing in return aside from being appreciative to him by loving him more than the things that we create with our own hands. And that's all he asks. And the reality is, are we willing to value God as much as he should be valued? In 2273, it reads, O people, here's a parable that you must ponder carefully. The idols you set up beside God can never create a fly, even if they band it together to do so. Furthermore, if the fly steals anything from them, they cannot recover it. Weak is the pursuer and the pursued. They do not value God as he should be valued. God is the most powerful, the Almighty. All this we do in order to gain God's approval. This is the greatest blessing we can have. By being appreciative, by valuing God, this is how we attain eternal happiness. And 972 reads, God's promise, the believing men and believing women, gardens with flowing streams wherein they abide forever, and magnificent mansions in the gardens of Eden. And God's blessings and approval are even greater. This is the greatest triumph. 
If we have God's blessings and approval, by being appreciative, there's nothing else anyone can possibly want. And 2577 reads, say, you attain value at my Lord only through your worship. But if you disbelieve, you incur the inevitable consequences. And the last verse we're going to read is 3174, where it reads, They have deserved God's blessings and grace. No harm ever touches them, for they have attained God's approval. God possesses infinite grace. So God willing, let's take these lessons. Let's be more appreciative. Let's value God for what He is, for everything He's given us. And let's put things in perspective. Now, if information is all we needed, then the expression is we'd all be rich with six-pack abs. But information is just the start. We have to put this into application. We have to do our worship practices, to be extra reverent during our contact prayers, to be joyful, to give to charity, to do good deeds, because this is the way we're going to learn to be appreciative. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.